My name is Steve Cairns, and I'm one of the elder candidates here at Icon Church, uh, and I'm going to be doing the scripture reading this morning. Uh, so join me in Colossians 1, uh, verses 15 through 20. And if you've got a blue ESV Bible uh, handy, it's on page 572, the reading of God's word. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Josh. I serve as the lead pastor here at ICON. And uh, yeah, I am so excited for us to hop into this new series. And so just to, again, kind of give you a framework of what we're going to be doing is uh, we're going to be looking at who we are as a church. You know, I think there's a lot of us that can actually maybe spout off our mission statement uh, that we exist in order to, to make disciples that follow Jesus faithfully in real life. Uh, but, but the question behind that that might be even more important is how, how, how do we want to be while we're doing that? You know, like we, we can make disciples that follow Jesus faithfully in real life. Like that can be our mission statement that we're going to give ourselves to. But, but what are we going to be like as we do that? What are the things that we're going to value as a church? And so this series is us just going through what it is that we're going to value, what it is that we want to, uh, you know, if we're, if we're making disciples that follow Jesus faithfully in real life, here's what we want our church to value. Here's how we know exactly who we're making. And so we're going to look at today uh, the important value of what it means to be Jesus-centered. Uh, l- let me pray, and then we'll hop into it. Father, I thank you for your word. Your word that is always, that is always at work, that is, that is still alive and active because your Holy Spirit comes with it and, and, and co-signs it and acts in power through it. And so I pray that today as we, we think about something so important about who your son Jesus is and what that means for us as Christians and as Icon Church, I pray that your spirit would help us, God, would help us to, to really see and to realize and to, to either wake up for the first time or for the thousandth time all the other idols and identities that we're looking for would you help us to wake up to their, uh, how pitiful those things are in comparison to your son? And so I pray that your spirit would give me power to communicate who Jesus is. I pray that as we look at the bigness of Jesus, that our hearts would be moved, that, that we get to be included in who he is. And that from that sense of bigness and that sense of awe, we would be drawn in. That those things that we are currently putting our identity in would lose their appeal. And that Jesus would become truly the the truest identity that we have. So I pray that your spirit would be with us. That you would unite your power with my weak words. 
and that you would cause the fruit of assurance and hope of life through identity in Jesus by your spirit. We trust you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the voice of James Earl Jones is always worth listening to, right? Uh, he has such a thunderous voice that just kind of captures your attention, that, that deep, resonant voice that has given, uh, given sound to so many of our favorite characters in movies, like Darth Vader, right? That's probably his most popular, that he, he was the voice for that. But, but there's a, one moment of that resonant voice that sticks with me, and it's in The Lion King. I have a three-year-old daughter, so I watch a lot of Disney. And in The Lion King, there, there comes a moment where Simba has grown up, and he's kind of a, a shell of who he was supposed to be. After going through this uh, self-imposed exile through misplaced guilt, Simba is searching for, for why, e- even in the midst of the Hakuna Matata lifestyle, why he still feels so empty, why he's bothered by what he's become. And in that moment, you know, there's uh, Simba is searching, and then he finds Rafiki, and you guys remember, right? When's the last time you watched Lion King? I watch it all the time. It's still good. Um, in that moment, you know, he finds Rafiki, and then uh, the Rafiki's trying to tell him, like, you know, your dad's still alive, and he takes him to this weird pool that reflects his image. And uh, there comes a moment where Simba is broken down, and he see, he, he's looking into this reflective pool in order to uh, hopefully see his dad, who he thinks is still alive, and and then he sees that it's just, it's just me. I'm, there's nothing more. There's nothing. My father is not here. And then Rafiki touches the pool, and then he sees the reflection of Mufasa in it. And then suddenly Mufasa comes out of these dark clouds with bright eyes, and, and he calls out, Simba, Simba, remember who you are. Mufasa's word to Simba and Simba's little identity crisis is for him to remember who he is. And if you watch it enough, you can see that this, this, this thread of identity actually runs through the whole movie, right? It starts off with Simba being lifted up as a future king and then Mufasa showing him like, this is all the, the, the kingdom that you're going to rule. And then even his little problem of not being able to have the roar that he's supposed to have as a king It's an identity thing. He's not who he's supposed to be. And so Mufasa's word to his son Simba in that moment is for him to remember who you are. You are my son. You are the chosen king. You need to remember who you are. And I I bring that up, not just because I love The Lion King and and all things Disney right now are a major theme in my life, but I bring this up because this moment and that whole theme of Lion King it revolves around a core issue that we have, which is identity. And I wonder today, if you, if you had that same phrase, that same phrase spoken over you, how would you respond? If there was a, some, someone in your life who carried some level of authority because of the relationship they have with you, if they came to you and said, hey, you need to, rem- you need to remember who you are, would you even know what it is you're supposed to be remembering? Would you even know who it is that you're supposed to be? How would you even respond to that? Would you have any idea at what they're getting at? You see, at least, at least Mufasa had, had led Simba to know that he was the rightful king, right? He helped him know his identity. But for you, could you even answer that call? If you were told today to remember who you are, 
Would you be lost at what to do because you don't exactly know it, who you are? You, you don't exactly know who it is you're supposed to be remembering who you are and why you are that. that that's the personal question of your life. I hope you realize that. Josh, Josh mentioned it in his interview, but that is the personal question of your life and that is the personal question of our culture. Our world is driven by identity. No matter what your background is, no matter what your political preference or socioeconomic status, you right now, you are living your life based on who you think you are. Sometimes even subconsciously, probably even most times subconsciously. But to live life in the 21st century is to live with, with some identity, something that you grab onto as, as the real you. As, as the truest thing about you. And our, and our culture tells us that the great religious search of the 21st century is to search yourself, to, to, to self-realize, wake up to who you really are, to who your true self is. And then once you realize that, then you have the, the religious works of self-actualization, of, of working yourself out. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that cultural religion of, of identity and self-realization and self-actualization, Christianity steps in and tells you, as a Christian, I want you to hear this today, that you can only realize who you are until you realize who Jesus is. Always. You can only really know yourself as a Christian if you know who Jesus is. And so if you want to realize who you are, what your true self is, the Christian worldview comes in and doesn't start talking about you, but starts talking about Jesus. Starts talking about who he is, what, what he's like. And so what we're going to do today to, to hit on this reality of being Jesus-centered, uh, we're going to talk about Jesus, surprise, surprise. Um, and we're going to talk about who he is. And I'm just going to warn you, we're going to get really high, okay? We're going to go really high into some theological stuff, but listen, you can do it. Seattle has the highest per capita of postgraduate degrees than any other city in the nation. You're smart, okay? And everyone's a theologian, by the way. Everyone is. It's just a matter, it's just a question of whether you're a good one or not, okay? <laughs> and so we're going we're gonna to talk about who Jesus is. What, 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 what's the most important thing that today we might need to know about him? That we might need to see from Jesus, and then we'll get into how that actually works for us. And so let's, let's do some theology together. So to talk about identity uh, and to talk about who Jesus is, we, we, there's a lot of things that we could say. There's a lot of things we could say about Jesus that, I mean, it, it literally takes a lifetime of discipleship in order to explore who Jesus is. And so uh, I wanted to pick a, an important one, and it's actually one that we get our name as a church from here in Colossians 1. And the one thing, the, the one thing that we're going to explore and we're going to kind of break apart about who Jesus is, is this idea, uh, you probably saw it in the text, that Jesus is preeminent. Jesus, you know, we, 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 when we think of Jesus, we, we have all these ideas in our head and we think about different attributes and characteristics of him, that he's gracious and lowly and meek and humble, which is all true, which is certainly true. But we also need to see 
that Jesus is, just, is not just patient, is not just kind, is not just humble and lowly, but he is the preeminent king that reigns over everything. That he, he is preeminent. He stands over all of your life. He stands over all of creation. And so I want us to have a really high view of Jesus today. That's, that's been my prayer this week, is that Jesus would be big in our minds. And then when Jesus, when we see him in that way, we can, we can talk about ourselves and what our identity is. And so when we look at this text, we see that Jesus is preeminent. That's who he is. But it gives three specific ways in which that preeminence is expressed, okay? Jesus is preeminent because of three actions shown here. First, he reveals the invisible God. That sounds important. He applies the purposes of God in creation, and he accomplishes the salvation that is from God. So those are the three things we're going we're gonna to kind of break apart that idea of preeminence with. And again, stay with me. I know that it's 10 a.m. on a Sunday, and so you might not feel like doing theology together, but have to do this. Theology is a good thing. It drives your life. It's not just because I'm a five on the Enneagram. I think, it's, I think it's a good thing for everyone. So Jesus is preeminent because he reveals the invisible God. Look at there in verse 15. Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. And so as we get into it immediately, we see that Jesus is supposed to be revealing someone, that Jesus is uh, is put on display who God is, the the God who who no one can see, Jesus puts him on the radar for us. And to understand this reality, we've got to understand something that's foundation to all of Christian theology and faith, and that is the triune nature of God, the Trinity, (laughs) I told you we were going to do some theology today. We believe from the Bible as Christians that there is one God who has eternally existed in in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And as you read the Bible, you see that that God the Father is this, this primal, unoriginated essence and nature of God. And you see that, that the Son is this eternally, what, what the Bible calls, begotten Son, who, who proceeds from the Father, who is eternally being generated from the Father. And the Holy Spirit is what you could call the, the, the concrete love between Father and Son, so strong that it's actually a person within itself. And now, with, within this framework of the Trinity, what you see in the Bible is that God is Trinity in himself, but he also, how he acts toward the world in creation, in redemption, in providence, it is always done as Trinity, That God isn't like, you know, God the Father isn't over here kind of taking care of creation, and then Jesus is assigned to do redemption, and then the Holy Spirit is assigned to give you goosebumps during worship. Like, it's more than that. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit is at work in every aspect of God's work. But they do have each assigned task in that. And what we see here that one of the assigned tasks of the Son is to make God known, to to reveal who God is. The the, the God who is invisible and, and without his help, we would not know what he's like, 
Jesus came on the scene in order to reveal who he is, to reveal who God is in his character and in his attributes. And so as one of my, one of my professors used to say is that, that God is as Christ does. God is as Christ does. There's a whole world in that little phrase. If you want to know who God is, if that's the question of your life, you look at what Jesus has done. That Jesus, in some way, is, is the, the divine pin art toy. Did you guys ever play with that when you were a kid? You know, whenever it's just like, there's like a, a block of pins, uh, and when you push them down, some, some image comes out on the other side. You know what I'm talking about? That's Jesus. You know, as kids, you used to push your face into it. That's Jesus. Jesus is pushing his face into the divine pin art toy so that you can see who God is. Jesus reveals who he is, who, who, who God is, what he's like. And so we don't ever have to have questions about what God is like. We just have to look at who Jesus is, what, what, what he's done. And in that, we see that God in, in, in Jesus' actions of mercy and compassion, we see a God that, that stands ready to, to welcome in the outcast. In his actions of judgment, we see a God that that stands resolutely against the sin of mankind, the sin that has the power to undo the universe and throw it into utter darkness. Jesus resolutely stands against that, showing that God cares about sin. (laughs) And in his actions of forgiveness, we see a God that is gracious, that's not wishing for any sinner to perish but actually wants to bring in everyone under his grace. I want to say this to you, Christian. Anything you know about God, anything you can, that you can hold on to is seen through Jesus Christ. And I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that's why we're Jesus-centered. That's why we, you know, we, we look at the Bible and God reveals himself here, but we, we, we specifically look at who Jesus is. What, what has he done? Because that's going to tell us who God is. And so, of course, we want to center our life as a church and as in our own personal discipleship on this person who's, so, who's given such a task to reveal the invisible God. Do, do you see the significance of that? That Jesus is not this domesticated figure with, who's white and has blonde hair and blue eyes. But he's the one who's come onto the scene, into the world, in order to make God known. And because of that, he is preeminent. He is significant above all else. Anything else we need to know or want to know falls under him, goes under him. He's the one through whom we know God. But then not only that, look, look at the rest of the text. Jesus is also preeminent because he, he applies God's purposes. Look at this. For by him, Speaking of Jesus, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. All things hold together in Jesus. Jesus shows us that God intends to sustain his creation. To, to keep it from devolving into to utter chaos and, and nothingness. 
This is what's traditionally called God's providence, if you've ever heard that word. Jesus is the agent of God's providence. The one keeping it together. Not just the one who created it, but the one keeping it together. Holding it together. Every, every piece of life that you know. And we don't realize this because we're so out of touch with reality. But everything you know, the skin in here, the, 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 what you're hearing from my voice, the building we're in, it is all, the Bible says, it is all sustained by one person, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In him, all things hold together. He, he intentionally puts his, his will toward holding all things together. So your life, this universe, doesn't, doesn't go scrambling and devolving into darkness because Jesus is at the helm of it, holding it together purposefully. Listen, listen to how the, the theologian Herman Bovink said this on providence and Jesus holding it together. The point is not that he lets the world exist, but that he makes it exist. This is maintenance in the true sense of the word. Very beautifully, the Heidelberg Catechism describes this providence as the almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were, by his hand, Jesus' hand, he still upholds heaven, earth, and all creatures. Virtue, strength, almighty and divine strength proceeds from God, goes out of him, quite as much in causing the world to continue to exist as at first in causing it to exist. Without receiving such strength, no single creature could for a moment be. The moment God removed his hand and withheld his strength, the creature would sink back in to nothingness. So the physical world and life itself does not exist on its own. The, the, you know, the pagan worldview that has, has made quite the, quite the return in our Western culture would say that, that matter and the world that we see is eternal. That it's, that it's, kinda, it's just always been there. And they say that because there's, they, they think that in the creation is actually God himself. But actually, the Christian worldview stands and says, no, the, the creation is not eternal. It is not self-staining. It comes together and stays together because of one person, Jesus Christ. In a purely one-sided relationship, God gives, through Jesus Christ, everything creation needs, everything your body needs, everything this world needs to just be, let alone thrive, but just to exist. And then not only that, but if you keep reading on in the text, it shows that God's purpose is not just to create things in Jesus and sustain all things in Jesus, but also his purpose is to renew all things in Jesus. That's why he says he's the firstborn from the dead. He's, he's the first prototype of what new creation is going to look like, free from death and free from sin. Jesus is preeminent as the one who holds everything together and accomplishes God's purposes. And then finally, Jesus is preeminent because he accomplishes the salvation that we all need. Look back at the text. For in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of this cross. Jesus, this, 
the Son of God who holds all things together, who images forth and shows who God is, doesn't just do the great things that keep us together, but actually does the great thing that brings us back together with God. Reconciliation, making peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus is preeminent because he accomplishes the salvation that we need, the reconciliation that we need back to this God that he makes known. And I say that word specifically, reconciliation, because that's what we need as human beings. That's what we need. Many of us have a view of God that he's, he's something like a disappointed grandmother who's disappointed with some of our actions, wished our lives would have turned out maybe a little bit different. But in the end, still has affection for us, right? I'm still in the will, right? That's not what God is like. God is not just disappointed with us. Our, our sin against him is not just us breaking old-fashioned rules that our grandma has. Our sin is treason. It's not disappointment. It's not a humorous quirk. It is defamation. It is idolatry. It is taking what God created and making that God. Taking from God, kicking him off his throne, and saying to him, I know better. What do you know, God, who created me? What do you know? It's not, it's not, defam- it's not just disappointment. It is treason. We've not just disappointed God, but we have awakened his judgment because of our sin. This, this sin that, that, that tries to, to further the, the human campaign of, of making ourselves, of taking God out of the picture and just being the one thing. We can do it. We can make ourselves. We further that. And that is sin. And it's also destructive for us. Not, just, it, not only does it just awaken the judgment of God, but actually unravels us as well. Listen to this from my favorite guy, John Webster. Talking about sin, he says, we choose what Isaiah calls our own way. We choose, that is, to live in the world as if we could make it up, as, as if we could make up life as we wished, as if there were no script, as if there were no order or structure or given reality, no shape but what we invent. We devastate ourselves by lawlessness. Not just lawlessness in the sense of breaking the rules, but lawlessness in a deeper sense the terrible disorder which afflicts us when we no longer live in the form that we've been given by God and in companionship with God, but instead take to ourselves the rights and dignities of being our own creators. We make ourselves, and precisely in making ourselves, we destroy ourselves. That's what we've done. We've not disappointed an old-fashioned grandmother We have taken from God, or at least we think we have, his right to make us and to tell us who we are. And in trying to make ourselves, we have destroyed ourselves. We've separated ourselves from God. We've become alienated from him. And not only that, we've become alienated from creation, from each other, and even from our own selves. We're no longer who we were made to be, but we are at the core broken, fractured. And in that moment, in that type of scene, this great son of God 
leaves the praises of heaven in order to refuse our refusal of him. And says, you know what, I know, I know that you want to make yourself, I know that you want to be the one who, who gives yourself a sense of identity, who gives yourself a sense of meaning. You want to live lawlessly, not just, not just breaking the rules, but living adrift and free from God. I know that's what you want, but I refuse to let you run down that path. He refuses our refusal of him and steps in and makes peace by the blood of his cross. Jesus Christ steps in and shouts an emphatic no to our human campaign of making ourselves. And by so doing, he remakes us through reconciliation, bringing us back into relationship with God. This, this is who Jesus is. This is why he's preeminent. This is why he has significance for the Christian. Because he stands over everything, all areas of life from creation to how everything stays together to now our redemption in Christ. He stands over all of it. He's preeminent. That's who Jesus is. And so I, I, I run through all of this in order for you to, to wake up to how pitiful every other identity is. Because here's the wonder of Christianity. Here's the wonder that this God He wants to be the truest thing about you. He wants to be the one who is driving your sense of value, who's giving you a sense of significance, who breaks into your life in order to become the truest thing about you, that you are held by this God, you are redeemed by this God, and yet, yet... We spend our life trying to, trying to create all these other identities. And I'm talking about Christians. I'm not talking about the world. I'm not talking about those outside of the church. I'm talking about Christians. We spend our life still trying to, trying to vet all the other offers of what might make us feel meaningful and valued. And so we run to work. We think that, that career and ambition, that once I finally get this position, there's something in me that's going to click. Or we think of family. Once I finally get this spouse, once, once I finally have these kids, or once my kids are finally grown up a little bit more, something's going to click and I'm, I'm going to feel right. And this Jesus all the while is standing as the preeminent one saying, I'm right here. I'm big enough to hold all of your desire for value, all of your need for significance. I'm right here, and I offer myself freely to you. We, we needed Jesus this big to be our truest identity. And we also needed Jesus this big just in, in general life, right? This isn't in my notes, but... We, I talked about how we domesticate Jesus. We need a Jesus this big who's over all things for when things come crashing down, for when, when suffering comes into our life. You know, last night um, around midnight, my daughter Margot, uh, sitting in my notes, I don't know why I'm saying it. Um, my daughter Margot woke up and uh, 
she, she was screaming, um, but it, it wasn't like a real scream. It wasn't a full-fledged scream. She was, you could tell she was, she was gasping for air. And so I run in there, you know, and she's, uh, something's happening. I don't, know, I don't know what, but I can tell her chest is going in real deep. She can't quite catch her breath. My wife comes running in as well, and we're waiting there, and I'm trying to get her to, to come to and to, uh, to, t- to calm down, take a deep breath, and all the while I'm freaking out on the inside. And I just tell, I just tell my wife, I'm like, okay, I'm taking her, you know, so I pick her up, and I, <laughs> I, I'm driving her to Seattle Children's, and the whole time I'm thinking, all things, all things, all things, Jesus, is what these verses say that in you all things hold together, including the, the peace and safety of my daughter. That, that all things are in submission to your desire and your good will. All things. We, we need a Jesus this big, not a domesticated one, not a small one, but one who is over everything to give us some peace in our life. For when a moment like that comes that takes you off guard, you're not left totally reeling. But we also need a Jesus as big for our identity. An identity, a Jesus who can come to us and give us an identity that covers all of life. Because that's, that's part of the problem with all the other identities that we, we try to grab onto, right? Whether it's sexuality, or politics, or family, when we try to find our identity in those things, what we're doing is we're taking a sliver of what it means to be a human being, taking a small piece of life and then trying to shove that into all of life. And it doesn't work. It's too small. Your sexuality, your political party, your family is too small to cover all of what you were meant to be. All the value and sense of meaning and significance, that is too big for something, for just a slice of you to cover. But here stands Jesus with this preeminent nature, and Paul keeps saying all things, all things, all things. This one can cover all of life. You can have an identity that, that, that there's no corner of life that, that, that's out of bounds, You can have peace. You can have rest. You can have a sense of value that can't be taken from you. You can have a sense of value that is bigger than your resume. You can have a sense of meaning that's more permanent than even the ones you love and the family you have. Do you see why we need to be Jesus-centered as a church? Because there's, there's no other option There's no other option for you personally as a disciple, and there's no other option for us corporately as a church. He's the one we're here for. He's the one who's preeminent, and he's the one we're here for. And so the reason I wanted to start off this series about about our values of being Jesus-centered, one, because it's the first one, but also because I, I wanted to start this off saying that this, everything comes back to this. You can take our values and then fold them back and they all come back to this single value. That Jesus is the reason we're here. We we center our life as a church 
on who Jesus is, not even what icon becomes. That, that, that we're not here to build a big machine. We're not here to, if, we, if our truest identity as a church is found in Jesus, then that means that our sense of value, our sense of even joy and excitement for our church is never dependent on weekly attendance or any other metric that we might cover, but it's actually how faithful are we being in worship to Jesus? That's where we're gonna know whether we're doing the thing rightly. How faithful is our worship to Jesus? And then for you personally, that, that has to be the, the, the touchstone of your life as well. Who you are cannot be resting on anything else. It cannot be. You will not be a fully formed disciple of Jesus while you try to make up or pick up all these other identities along the way. You've got to, you've got to say and live your life with intention to bring who you are back into Jesus. And that's going to have real consequences for your life. I hope you know that. It's almost a warning for me. <laughs> that's going to have real consequences for your real life if you find your truest identity in Jesus. You know, I was, I was having a, I had a, a partner interview this last weekend going through membership stuff, and we were talking about this. And one of the things we were talking about is the, the busyness of work and how much, uh, how much it just kind of beats us down when we're working 55, 60, 70-hour work weeks. And I told this person, and this, you might not like this, but I'm not sure, maybe you're the exception, I'm not sure if it's possible for you to be a faithful Christian and succeed at the toppest level of business. I think there might be a ceiling vocationally for you if you're going to be a fully formed disciple of Jesus. Because here's the thing. Discipleship to Jesus requires a certain pace of life. It requires certain rhythms that are often opposed to the pace and the rhythms of the rat race. But if your identity is in Jesus, that doesn't have to upset you. <laughs> because the, the, you can recognize that there might be a ceiling for you vocationally. That, not saying talent-wise, you could break through that ceiling. I believe in you but for your heart to be well in the Lord and to be faithful to him, a fully formed disciple, you might not be able to be partner. You might not be able to be CEO. That's not a word from the Lord. Don't hear me saying that. I'm just telling you what, I, what I'm observing. But that doesn't have to intimidate you. That doesn't have to make, even make you sad if your truest identity is in Jesus. And so these things have real-life consequences. And I, I hope that as a church, the, the, the first way that we are centered on Jesus is what we do every single week when we practice communion. As we remember, even what, what Kyle took us through in the confession and the assurance is that our truest identity is in Jesus, not in how well our week went, not in how... Not in by, by, by adding up the sum of our failures or the sum of our successes, but our identity in Jesus, our safety, our security in the Christian life comes because Jesus stepped in and made peace by the blood of his cross. So yeah, I want to say a word to you who are vocationally ambitious and you, know, you want to rule the world, but I also want to say a word to you struggling Christian 
who's discouraged by your own inability to get it together, who feels like you can't get away from this sin, or you can't stay consistent with this practice. Your value as a Christian is not dependent on that. Would that you would receive that and see that your sense of meaning comes from what Jesus has done for you and not whatever you do for him or don't do for him. So friends, this is the way to peace, to see that Jesus is preeminent and that all things are in submission to him. And by finding our identity in him, we accept that reality and we refuse all other offers. Because every other offer, if these words are true, every other offer to find identity in is ultimately out of touch with reality. Only when we find our identity in this Jesus who drives and sustains all reality do we truly tap into what is real. And so my my prayer for us as as a church and for you personally is that you would see the bigness of Jesus and that when you feel that little ache to find your value, that you would remember who you are. You would remember who you are in Jesus Christ. And that that would be more than enough. Let's pray. Father, I thank you, Lord, that, that you, are, you are the God of the universe, the God who sustains all things, and yet you take notice of us in our own little personal identity crises, You care about those. That's what's so wonderful about being Jesus-centered is that that you invite us to be. You invite us to receive a word about who we are from you directly. We don't have to go searching for it. We don't have to join in the religious search of our culture to find ourselves. We've already been told who we are in Jesus Christ. What a gift that is. And I pray that that would bring rest to my friends here. And that we as a church, we would refuse to base our life, our joy, our excitement for Icon Church on anything other than the faithful worship of this preeminent Jesus. Would you keep us from the temptation as a church to to want something big and want something flashy? Help us to just be humble to be a faithful witness, and to build our life on Jesus, both personally and corporately. Give us that grace, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. This teaching was recorded as part of our current sermon series at Icon Church. During our weekly gatherings, we move from the teaching into a time of response, to reflect on and respond to the work of the Spirit. While we recognize it's hard to capture that in a podcast, we'd still encourage you to take a moment. Consider what the Spirit might be saying to you in response to what you heard. For more resources and details about how to join us on Sundays, visit iconchurch.org. As we say each week, Christ is all and we are His.